All right, you will need a Bible, and you can go ahead and find 1 Samuel 27. Really, all we're going to do tonight is read through this single chapter, 1 Samuel 27. Don't have a lot of other scriptures uh, that I intend for us to look at. Uh, We'll read it in sections, and I'll kind of make a few comments as we go. And we're going to think through, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a very interesting episode in David's life. Uh, One that on the surface doesn't provide a lot of encouragement to us, or at least a lot uh, for us to follow by way of positive example. But there is hope in this passage, and I hope that we'll end uh, centered on some of that hope. I want to start by talking to you about survival. Americans, at least on some level, seem to be obsessed with the idea of surviving, uh, just sort of being in the elements and trying to, to make it on our own. A long time ago, way back in the year 2000, a TV show came out called Survivor, and it's been on TV ever since then. It was the first really commercially successful reality TV show. And at the time, look, when you watch Survivor now, you watch it and you say, this is, this is not reality. This is scripted, just the whole thing is like a sitcom or something. It's just people on an island and they're not professional actors. But at the time, people watched it and said, this is real. This is real life. And we liked the element, Americans liked the element of people having to survive out in the wilderness. But eventually we, we sort of caught on to things and we realized, you know, There's no danger in Survivor. We call it Survivor, but nobody's really in peril of not surviving. They're all going to make it. And so then we started watching shows like Man vs. Wild and Survivor Man. And these were a little bit more edgy than survival, right? There's no silly games. There's no tribal council. It's just a a guy, a wilderness expert, and we're going to drop him out in the wilderness, and we're going to see if he can make it back. And I remember watching these, the Bear Gorilla shows, when they first came out, and you think, this is exhilarating. Is he going to make it out of the desert, yes or no? And after like six episodes, you realize he's going to make it out every time. They're not going to leave him. The helicopter's going to go back, and they're going to pick him up, and they're going to give him a granola bar if he gets hungry, and this is not, you know, this is not this is not doing it for us. So now people like shows, I don't really watch these, but Ultimate Survival Alaska, Alaska the Last Frontier. These are people, they're not actors, they actually live there. Right? We're not just dropping them off in some remote lake location and then we're going to come back for them later. These are people who actually live there and the shows are about sort of profiling their life. What is it like to actually live in these locations? So these shows are fascinating to Americans. I don't know what the next iteration of this will be. Uh, but we like these shows that we feel like are based in reality and they have some element of survival in it. And I don't know exactly why those shows are appealing. I think one reason that we might like those shows is that our lives are pretty safe and fairly predictable. That might be a little bit less true if you live in Odessa, Texas. But for the most part, your life has some routine to it, some normalcy. You kind of have a general idea of what to expect each day when you wake up. Uh, There's always outliers that can shake that up in your life. Um, not to joke at all, a cancer diagnosis can really shake your sense of security and knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, A mass shooting in your community 
can for a time sort of shake your sense of normalcy and predictability and safety and all of those things. But for the most, for the most part, we live uh, what one, one uh, social commentator has called bubble-wrapped lives, bubble-wrapped lives. We have safety belts and airbags and speed limits. Those may or may not be followed in uh, Odessa on 42nd Street, but we have them. Um, we have locks and alarms and cameras on our houses. Uh, we buy insurance. I bet if I went to your house, you have more than a day's worth of food in your pantry. Uh, that's not true for a lot of people all around the world, but many of us have, have plenty of food in the pantry. And so there's some fascination for us with people who are in a situation where they are simply surviving. The story we're looking at, this episode from David's life, is a time in his life, I think, where he's just surviving. He's not making a lot of spiritual progress on any level whatsoever. He's just sort of getting by. He's just sort of making it through one day at a time and surviving. And that may be relatable to you. That may be the stage of life you're in right now. You may say, I feel like spiritually I'm on the hamster wheel. Like I'm doing a lot of moving, but I'm not actually getting anywhere. And I just feel like it's day-to-day sort of survival. I'm just trying to get through one more day of work, one more month of my job, one more season of life until I can have a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And I hope that as we look at this episode from David's life, maybe there's a negative example that you don't want to follow in David, but there's certainly some hope that you ought to hang on to. So David is surviving. He's with his family. At this period in David's life, I know we've sort of had a few breaks here over the last few weeks. He's got about 600 men with him, and some of them have families with them. So David's got some family. He's got 600 or so guys with him. They have people with them, and David's in charge of this whole crew. So we're just going to ballpark it at 1,000 people. Right? You've got a 1,000 people out in the wilderness. David is taking care of these people. They're all just trying to survive. Here's a map that gives you the general idea of, uh, of where all this is happening. Our story is going to start up in Gath, and then it's going to move. I'm going to move the red circle down to the bottom there-ish, somewhere down there. Okay? And the, the ish part is intentional. This is technically the territory of Judah, but they don't control it all. And really, the Philistines control this area. And the specific town that David's going to end up in is Ziklag. And it's a town that in the conquest was given to Judah. It was theirs by right, but they didn't control it at this point in history. The Philistines controlled it. We'll see that here in just a minute. So here's an opening quote just to set the stage before we jump into the text. This is from Peterson. David spent the decade of his 20s in the wilderness as an outlaw with a price on his head. He was chosen by God at a young age and anointed to be king of Israel. He entered the court of King Saul, was loved as a friend and singer. He saved his nation from the Philistine military assault and became a hero among the people. And then he was driven from these accomplishments and admirations to survive as best he could in the wilderness, just to survive. We don't have an exact chronology provided for us, but roughly 10 years, for roughly 10 years, David lived a fugitive life in the wilderness. So let's jump in, 1 Samuel 27. David is going to seek refuge 
in the land of the Philistines. And I just want you to read with me the first four verses, 1 Samuel 27, beginning in verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And I just want you to slow down, and I want you to think about what's happening just already. David is saying something in his heart. He's talking to himself here. And his thought is, I'm going to die by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me. The best option I have at this point is to escape to the land of the Philistines. This is the man who put a rock between Goliath's eyes. The best thing I can do right now is just to go live with the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose, he went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow, And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So there's a couple of things I want you to see here. The first is this. David is talking to himself rather than talking to the Lord. That's a dangerous thing for David. That's a dangerous thing for me. That's a dangerous thing for you. To do too much talking to yourself and listening to yourself rather than talking to the Lord and listening to the Lord. And we're not going to look up these verses I gave you. 1 Samuel 23, 2, 23, 4, 38, 2 Samuel 2, 1, 5, 19, 5, 23. Let me just give you the point in each one. Each one of those references says, David inquired of the Lord. He's got a problem. He's got a dilemma. He's got something he's not quite sure about, something he needs to make a decision on. And what does he do? In each of those cases, he inquires of the Lord. God What should I do here? God, where do you want me to go? God, give me some direction. I need some help. In this instance, there's none of that. He's not talking to the Lord. He's just talking to himself. It's just sort of self-reflection. This reminds me of the story of a lady named Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick. It's not every day you get to put a picture of a woman in a bathing suit up on the screen in church, okay? 1952, Florence Chadwick, she decides that she wants to swim from Catalina Island off the coast of California back to the coast of California. It's a distance of about 22 miles. She says, I want to swim. Open water, open ocean. I'm going to start on Catalina Island. I'm going to swim back to the coast. And they publicize it, and they sort of make it a big deal, and they've got cameras there, and they've got people watching. And it's sort of a a publicity thing, like somebody walking the tight wire at Niagara Falls. So the day comes. Everything's planned out. She's trained. In the day of the swim, it's very foggy, pretty typical for middle to northern California. And so she takes off swimming in the fog, and the water's rough, and she swims, and she swims, and she swims, and she's given it all that she's got. And she reaches a point where she says, I'm done. And the people who were with her in the boat, sort of the safety crew right there beside her, they're saying, keep going, keep going. And she's saying, it's so foggy, I can't see, I don't know where we're at. You're going the right direction. Don't quit, don't stop. And she finally just convinces them, I can't swim any longer. 
I got to get out of the water. So they pull her out. They get her in the boat. You know, they wrap her up. They give her something to eat. They wait about a minute. The fog begins to clear, and the coast is less than half a mile away. She has swam 21 and a half plus miles, and she's got just a little bit more to go. And this is her quote after they get her into the boat and the fog clears. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Sometimes in life you can't see the shore. You're just stuck in the fog. That's where she was at in the swim, and that's where David's at in this situation. He looks around at all his options, and he says, what could I do? What could I do? What could I do? There's no thought in his mind that he should talk to the Lord about it. Maybe he's too discouraged. Maybe he doesn't think the Lord cares or hears or will do anything in his favor. And he simply starts talking to himself, and he says, the best thing I can do is to get out of Israel and go live as a refugee amongst the Philistines. He can't see God and essentially he quits. He has forgotten, this is on your outline, he's forgotten the anointing and the promise of Yahweh. He, he's lost sight of the shore, the end game, of where he's headed in all of this. There's no thought to what God has promised to do for him or what God has already poured into his life. He's just ready to quit. 1 Samuel 16 is the anointing from Samuel. He doesn't seem to remember that. 1 Samuel 23, 17 is when Jonathan meets with him and Jonathan says, listen, you are going to be the king. It's his best friend telling him, you're going to be the king. He seems to have forgotten. 1 Samuel 25, 30, Abigail, his soon-to-be wife, shows up and says, forget my husband, he's a fool. We know that you're going to be the king. Everyone knows you're going to be the king. She knew it. But here, David doesn't know it. 1 Samuel 24, 20. Saul himself, after David spares his life, Saul himself says, you're going to be the king. You're going to be king. We all know it. And here's David in 1 Samuel 27. He seems to have forgotten all of it. You could call it pessimism if you wanted to. I like this quote from Chuck Swindoll. You and I have never had the Lord lead us to a pessimistic thought, never once. They come strictly, there's a typo on your sheet, I believe, strictly from within our carnal minds, and they can be devastating. The Lord has never led you or me to pessimism. Pessimism is not faith. It's not trust. And that doesn't mean you're not going to be discouraged, and that doesn't mean sometimes you're not going to be a realist about your situation or your circumstances, but pessimism is what David seems to be battling here. When David says, think about this, when David says, the best thing for me right now is to go live with the Philistines, essentially what David is saying is, God is not able to keep his promises to me, or he simply doesn't care at this point. Either he's not able to come through, or he's just lost interest and given up on some level. Previously, David sought refuge in the Lord, but now he is seeking refuge and returning to Gath. And I just want you to think for a minute about Gath. How strange it is that David ends up at this point in Gath. The first time in David's story we read about Gath, it's Goliath. 
the Philistine, from Gath, the great champion, and David kills him and he slays him. The next time we read about Gath in the story of David is when David shows up in Gath and everyone starts to talk. The giant killer just walked into town and David gets a little panicky and David decides my only play here in Gath is to drool on myself, scratch on the walls, and act like a crazy man. And he pulls it off completely. They think he's off his rocker nuts. That's the last time he was there. So what are these people thinking about David when he walks into Gath for the second time? There's a little confusion, right? Here's the guy that killed Goliath. But do you remember the last time we saw David? drooling on his beard, scratching the wall. I don't know about you, and I don't know exactly how big Gath was at this point in time, but I don't think people forgot about that. I bet people were still talking about David drooling all over himself. And I'll give you a a story that I think proves my point, that they were still talking about it. When I was in high school, my granddad and my grandma liked to go places during the winter so they could play golf in the winter. And they hold up in Fredericksburg for a couple of years, lived in Amarillo, gets too cold to play in Amarillo, so they go to Fredericksburg so they could sort of uh, get away from the cold at least for a few months in the winter. The only thing my grandparents, when they were able to play golf, the only thing they loved more than playing golf was finding golf balls at the golf course. That was the real mission, finding golf balls. We might play a few holes along the way, but we're really there to hunt for balls. No lie, I have never in my life, never bought a single golf ball. And every time I have played golf, I have played with very expensive golf balls. And my grandparents don't play golf or hunt golf balls anymore, but I have egg cartons in my garage stacked up. I got a a pretty good supply. And so some of you guys do this. So, They're in Fredericksburg, they're playing golf, they're looking for balls, and they're playing this hole, and my granddad sees down this draw by the creek a white, shiny golf ball. And he sort of sizes the thing up and he says, I can't can't reach it. My tool isn't even long enough. You know, he's got five tools in his bag to pull them out. I can't reach it. But he cannot leave that ball. He cannot leave a ball. So he says, I'm just going to hop down this bank, and I'm going to get this ball. So he hops down, and first hop, he breaks breaks his ankle and just sort of tumbles down the draw, and he ends up by the creek. He gets the golf ball. That's important in his mind. He ends up with the ball, but his ankle is hurt so bad, he can't get back up, up the thing back to the fairway. And so my grandma has to go back to the clubhouse. They have to call the ambulance. They have to drive the ambulance out onto the golf course, to pick him up on the eighth hole or wherever, and they load him up, and they take him to the hospital, and they do surgery, and uh, he couldn't drive home. My grandma didn't want to drive, so I flew down to Austin and picked him up, and I drove them back at the end of their vacation. He went back to Amarillo, and he propped his leg up, and he healed up. The next year, they got ready to go back to Fredericksburg. And I don't know at what point in the trip this happened, but at one point in the trip, my granddad walks into the donut shop. And like every donut shop, there's a group of old-timers sitting over in the corner. And my granddad is there to order his blueberry donut and coffee or whatever. And he's listening to the old-timers. And something piques his attention. And these guys over at the table, this is a year later, at the exact moment he walks into the donut shop, somebody says, 
hey, you remember last year when that guy broke his leg on the golf course and they had to drive the ambulance out there? Oh, man, wasn't that funny? That guy couldn't get up. He was stuck down in the creek. And I'm sure he embellished the story and made it worse. But they were still talking about it a year later. Look, when David the giant killer walked into town in Gath and starts drooling on himself and scratching on the walls, everybody remembered that. That was the talk of the town. The guy who killed our greatest soldier has lost his marbles. When he walks back in, they still know that story. They're still telling that story. They're still laughing about that story. It's a strange, strange thing that David walks in to Gath. Lakato says it like this. He's running from a crazed king. He's hiding in the hills. He's leading a ragtag group of soldiers, feeding more than a thousand mouths, no hope, and most of all, no God. He's focused on Saul. He hangs Saul's poster on his wall and replays his voice message. David immerses himself in his fear until his fear takes over. Here's the tragic part about this story. David's plan worked. His cowardly, faithless, pessimistic plan worked. Verse 4. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. We could talk a long time about the fact that when you pursue sin in a crisis situation, there may be some temporary relief to what you're dealing with, what you're facing. Right? You can take the faithless, cowardly, pessimistic route. And in the short run, you may find or experience a little bit of deliverance or relief. In the end, it's always and only going to make things worse. And that certainly happened to David. David made himself a servant. Think about that. A servant of Achish, the king of Gath. And I want you to read with me verse 5, 6, and 7. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant, David calls himself, I am your servant. I, David, the anointed king of Israel, the giant killer, I am self-identifying as the servant, the slave of the king of Gath. Why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. It was in the territory of Judah, technically, but the Philistines controlled it. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Peterson says it like this. Philistines had been the, the primary enemy through all that century. David was first known among his people as champion over the Philistine giant Goliath. And now David, instead of killing Philistines, is cozying up to them ingratiating himself with them. The last 16 months of David's wilderness years are spent, think about this, in the Philistine camp as an ally of the Philistines. David says, I'll be your servant. It's not a very kingly thing to do. And there's a lot of different Bible commentators that try to pour sugar on this and make it sort of palatable and say, this is really not that big a deal. It's, it's a big deal, it's bad. He shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. It was cowardly. It was faithless. 
It was pessimistic. What did he do while he was there? He spent 16 months lying to Achish and raiding nomadic tribes. So we'll read that starting in verse 8, 1 Samuel 27, 8. David and his men went up. They made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. These were the inhabitants of the land from old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, that was a lie. Against the Negeb of the Jeremielites, that was a lie. Or against the Negeb of the Kenites, that was a lie. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Remember, he thinks he's attacking towards Israel. He thinks, well, those people hate David now. They're not going to rally towards David. Therefore, he will always be my servant. Why wouldn't he think that? David called himself his servant. This is a low moment. In David's life, there's not a lot to boast about, not a lot to brag about, not a lot for you and I to emulate, right? This, this faithless path gave him a little bit of relief at first. Saul stopped chasing him, but then it creates a whole nother set of problems. He's now allies with the Philistines, and as we're going to talk over the next couple of Wednesday nights where we, we work through this study, that's going to become a really, really big problem when the Philistines say, hey, why don't you come fight with us not fight against us why don't you come fight with us and David really has no option but to say okay I'll march out in battle against Israel with you the Philistines it's a really big reminder that one little sin that you think is going to get you a little bit of relief from the situation you're in at the moment you have no idea how that could spiral out of control and turn into something that you, ne- you never imagined it would become. It's not a good season in his life. This is a guy who's just surviving. Here's the good news. Okay? Here's the good news, the hope. God is at work for his glory and Israel's good even when David is just surviving. Even when David is lying and raiding, and just trying to get by and take care of the people under his watch. God is actually at work behind the scenes for his glory and Israel's good. This is really good news for David, and it's really good news for us. Peterson explains it like this. God is perfectly capable of working out his purposes in our lives, even when we can't lift a finger to help. Better yet, God is faithfully working out our salvation even when every time we lift a finger it seems to contribute to the wrong side, the Philistine side. David is doing nothing praiseworthy here. And not for a second do we need to try to say, well, maybe there's a a way we can look at this in some sort of positive light. Just acknowledge it for what it is. This is embarrassing. This is not anything that you and I ought to be trying to emulate. But even in those moments, God's at work. God's hands aren't tied because David is a coward. God is still at work for his glory and for Israel's good. I'll give you a few examples. Example number one, Saul is coming to the end of himself. We're going to read 
these upcoming chapters, chapter 28, chapter 31, Saul is just unraveling at the seams, right? This problem that David can't seem to solve is going to be solved in the very, very near future, right? Just you're months away. Hang on a little bit longer. The coast is half a mile away. You've swam 21 and a half miles. I know that all you can see is fog. Don't get in the boat. Just keep swimming. He doesn't do it. Saul is coming to the end of himself. Secondly, David, I might add unwittingly, finishes part of the conquest that was left undone. These tribes that he goes raiding against are actually people that Joshua and the Israelites were supposed to wipe out all the way back in the conquest. Did you notice that little verse? Verse 8 talks about these were the inhabitants of the land from old. And it, it lists some of these ite tribes, right? All the ites. And they weren't wiped out. And you can read about this in Judges chapter 1. They fought a lot of battles but at some point, they got tired and they quit fighting and they left some of these people in the land and they didn't execute the plan, the, the strategy, the orders that God had given them. And David is sort of mopping up part of the conquest. Thirdly, this is the big one. In Ziklag, God was forming a community of people who would rule with David. And sort of, at some point, we're going to come back to some of these names that get dropped in from time to time. These disenfranchised, indebted people, these disgruntled, angry folks, misfits in society, they end up here with David. And in the end, this is like the cabinet that's going to rule over Israel. And God is putting together the A-team, as it were, in Ziklag. Nobody realizes that's what ha what's happening, but that's what God is actually doing in this moment. Peterson says this. This isn't what we would call the cream of the crop of Israelite society. It's more like the dregs from the barrel. Misfits all, it appears. The people who couldn't make it in regular society. Rejects, losers, dropouts. These are the people David lived with for that decade of wilderness years. Can I just stop right there before we read the rest of the quote? Those are the people God always sides with in the Bible. The dropouts. The losers, the misfits, the rejects. That's what he did when he picked Abraham. He didn't find a guy who had anything to offer him. He just said, you'll do. I'll start with you. He specifically told Israel when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, I didn't bring you out because you were numerous, powerful, rich. You're none of those things. I wasn't looking for somebody who had anything to offer me. I was just looking to keep the promise I made to Abraham, who also didn't have anything to offer me. That's who God uses. All the way through the Scriptures, that's who God tends to use today. I think a lot of churches have forgotten this, and I don't mean to just bash other churches, but sometimes I look around at churches and I think, it looks like the mission is to be cool, to put on a good enough program performance to have people on the platform wearing the right kind of clothing, uh, even to preach a message that the world is going to hear and say, oh, that's nice, that's encouraging, I like that. Some churches set out 
to preach that kind of message. We want to we share something positive, uplifting, encouraging, something that, that will help people in their daily life, and we want them to be receptive to it, and we want them to like it, and we want them to be open to it. The goal through the Old Testament and the New Testament was never to be the smartest, the most powerful, the coolest, the cleverest, the most fashionable. That's never the goal, and that's not the people that God tends to use. That's not who we are as the people of God. Peterson ends with this. I love this idea. He says, I refuse to either apologize for the church as it is or attempt to improve its image. I'm not trying to run a PR campaign here. He says, it isn't always this way, but for most of us, the wilderness spirituality, he's talking about David's experience here in the wilderness, it includes being in the company of people we wouldn't ordinarily choose to be with and who wouldn't ordinarily choose to be with us. These are not, for the most part, nice people. We better get used to it. David did, Jesus did, Paul did. God is, in this moment in David's life, he's building a community of people who are going to rule over Israel. Look, today, Jesus Christ is building a community of people. He's building a church. He's not looking for rich. He's not looking for powerful. He doesn't need fashionable. He doesn't need clever. He just needs faithful. People who will not give in to despair and get in the boat when you're half a mile from the shore and all you can see is the fog, just be faithful. Just keep plugging away, keep trusting, keep holding on to the promises of God. And even when in our lives it feels like we're just surviving, you're not making any headwind, you're not making any progress, you're not seeing any results, even when you're in that stage of life, you can relax. And you can say, it's not up to me anyways. David's not contributing a blasted thing. And God is at work. He's at work for his glory. He's at work for the good of his people. And he has a plan that he will see to completion as he builds this community. And the same thing is true today.